When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Edge of Sports, the podcast brought to you by The Nation magazine. Since 1865, this is the oldest magazine in the country, yet also the freshest in terms of analysis. You got to check it out, thenation.com. It's there for you. Now let's start the show. I'm really excited about this one. Let's go. Mahmoud abdul Raouf is here only on Edge of Sports. A champion is bred from hard times, scarred minds standing on the ledge. The squad grind all time, victory in spite of opposition. Welcome to competition. You pick a side, I pick a side, they pick a side. Take the knee against abuse, they'd rather you die. Pushing through dark tunnels, trying to shed light. The fight is on the moment we enter the game of life. Get it right before the whole thing gone dead. Let's go ahead and take it dead. Meet me on the edge. Welcome to Edge of Sports TV, only on the Real News Network. I'm Dave Zirin, and this week we are talking with a former NBA player who is ahead of his time in more ways than one. In addition to having the sweetest of shots, this player made waves, made history, and frankly changed my life when he refused to come out for the national anthem in 1996 while playing for the Denver Nuggets. In the last year, he released his long-awaited memoir, In the Blink of an Eye, for Kaepernick Publishing, and he is the subject of the incredible Showtime documentary, Stand. His name is Mahmoud abdul Rauf. Also, I have choice words about Ron DeSantis's use of sports, and they are not kind. I will be turning no cheeks. And then, for Ask a Sports Scholar, we have a much better Ron, Dr. Ron Bishop, to talk about his critical work on how the media covers mental health in sports. But first, Mahmoud abdul Rauf. Mahmoud abdul Rauf, welcome to Edge of Sports. Oh, thank you for having me. You know, I said in the intro that in 1996, your stance literally changed my life. And I know I'm not alone. And I was wanted to know, I've always wanted to know this, was making that level of a social impact even on your mind? That's a great question. Um, I wanted to make an impact. And the impact, I, mean, I wanted to make an impact simply because I began to read uh, after getting the autobiography of Malcolm from Coach Brown at LSU. Uh, mm-hmm. His life really changed the way I started to see myself and what I wanted my history to say for itself. I, I, I think I've always been wanting to be conscious guy growing up um, because you see things. And I speak about this a lot. You see things that bother you, but you don't necessarily mm-hmm. know how to articulate them. So your heart is there, but you know, you've been conditioned to be silent, to say, you know, say nothing, to just play the game. But your heart is yearning for something else. And after I read the autobiography of Malcolm, and then I began to read a little bit more, I said, man, my 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 heroes changed. You know, it, be- mm-hmm. it began to be thinkers and, and people that were making a, a major, major difference. And, uh, but I didn't know that it would have, you don't know what impact it would have, but you know that you want to go out swinging. Uh, so to speak. 
You know, you mentioned Coach Dale Brown at LSU. I imagine he wasn't handing out copies of the autobiography of Malcolm X <laughs> like they were towels on the way to the shower. So what do you think attracted Coach Brown to that book in knowing that it would be something that you would respond to? That's You know what, for years, uh, it didn't dawn on me to ask him that question. And finally, one day, I decided to ask him. And his, his simple re response, I said, Coach, what made you give me that book? His response was, I don't know. <laughs> but <laughs> but but I, I ended up, I said, do you think that it's because I came out of Mississippi? He despised Mississippi. And he would always, uh, well, not always, on occasion when I would answer questions, he would check me. Like, hey, speak from your heart. Let him know how you really feel. And I said, is it because you thought also that I was a bit passive <laughs> uh, <laughs> and you were trying to bring me out of that? Um, and he said, you know what? That's very much possible. You know, why Why I gave it to you. But outside of me adding that, uh, giving him the, those cues, he his initial response is, you know, I don't know. <laughs> but I'm happy. I said, look, whatever whatever it is, I'm happy that you did. And And for me, I told him that was the outside of giving me the green light and, mm -hmm. and a lot, you know, me coming to LSU and all of that. I said, that was the best thing that you could have ever done for me. And I appreciate you for it. Wow. I mean, I'd like to go back to the stance you took uh, in 1996. Did you know at the time what it could cost you in terms of your career? Did you know it came with that level of risk? You know, Dave, I, I knew that there were risks, obviously, because, again, I began to, even before reading the autobiography of Malcolm, just the little knowledge I had of Muhammad Ali and what he went mm. through. And, and then the more you began to read and people who end up going against the grain, so to speak, you see the type of things that happen to them. However, there was a part of me, right, this, I guess, delusional hope that, listen, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do on the court. These are conversations that outside of the media, per se, you know, you have these conversations. People are talking about this stuff everywhere, right? Um, and this is obvious. It's in your face that they're going to see my, my body of work. They're going to hear it. And it's not going to, you know, get to that level, so to speak. And how naive I was, <laughs> right, <laughs> uh, to think that. But I wasn't unaware of it. You just do, you don't know how much, right, of of pushback it's going to be. Um, but you know, I, I learned quickly. But I had already made up my yeah. mind at the same time too that whatever the what, what, whatever comes out of it, this is the decision that I've decided for myself. And I say this a lot. I mentioned that, oh, I want to live and die with a free conscience and a free soul, whether people like it or not. And I mean that, you know, and so, but I didn't know exactly, but I knew that, okay, there's uh, something's going to happen. You just don't know how much. What, what do people not understand about your motivations your political motivations, your personal motivations to not come out for the anthem? 
this decision isn't in a vacuum. I, I making this decision didn't come out of a vacuum, obviously, but um, we all have these, you know, our experiences and growing up in the South, the things that I had to, to endure, uh, whether it be feeling that I was miseducated, right. Uh, whether it's, you know, going through the, the uh, being misdiagnosed and just so many other things, right. Not having a father and, and to see the Ku Klux Klan and, and, and the, the overt racism that you experience, these things shape and, and they, they, they form how you think, they, you know, how, how you see yourself, but also how you see the world around you. And so for me, I've always been taught that I didn't have the words then. You know, you hear these these beautiful quotes about people. If you want to find yourself, lose yourself in the service of others. Right. I, I was always taught mm-hmm. to pray for others more than you pray for yourself. Right. Mm. And it's bigger than you. And so I've always, for the most part, I grew up with this philosophy. And the more I began to read, and like I said before, and the more I began to become acquainted with different thinkers and stuff and 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 the struggles, I'm like, wow, this is what it's about. And so these are the things that's pushing me, you know, and 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 so I'm always trying to think of how can I as a human being benefit others, right? How can I be reach the point of selflessness that a lot of these people seem to have. And these are the things that begin to inspire me. And so this is what pushes me to make these decisions. I'm not perfect. Nobody is. But this is what 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 gives me peace. This is what gives me happiness. Even, even in light of the disappointments and the pain that comes with it. You know, I find more enjoyment and peace and, and contentment, right? In, in making these types of decisions than I do knowing that I see things and being silent about them and knowing that deep down I'm a coward if I don't stand up for them. And so these are the mm. things that, that, that push me among, among many others. Mm. Yeah. You know, I, I've heard you in the past mention thinkers like Arundhati Roy and Noam Chomsky. Um, and of course, you mentioned Alex Haley, Malcolm X, as part of some of the people that you were reading and the media drilled it down though to Islam. <laughs> yeah. He's doing this because of Islam and, and the ridiculous nature of our media exposed in the way they covered you in 1996. But I did want to ask you the anti-Muslim bigotry you faced. I mean, it was awful. And I think it foreshadowed the post nine 11 era when attacks on Muslim people were so normalized by this government. As a person who in 1996 had only been practicing the Islamic faith for, for just a few years, what was that like for you? Was that an eye-opener for you to see them go after your religion like that? Of course. Uh, um, it, it definitely opens your eyes to how, how you know, you, you hear all of this talk about freedom of speech and freedom of religion, and, and especially during times of war and of crises, how this sense of nationalism and we we all have to be together in, in one country and all of this stuff and then you realize like whoa that's not really the way and i knew it before but especially when it hits you personally right mm-hmm. like it it's it's a little bit it feels let's just face it, it's more intense right because you you mm-hmm. you're actually feeling this this is attack on you and then mm-hmm. it, it branches out into now, not just you, now they're attacking your faith. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's um, it angers you. Uh, you. I mean, you definitely I mean, look, 
we're human beings and God puts anger in us, right? So it angers you, it disappoints you, it saddens you, it frustrates you. It, and so all of those feelings were there on uh, amidst others. Um, but I was, I, Dave, man, I was, and still at, at 54 years old, um, I'm in a sense also unmoved by it. I mean, it doesn't, I'm not intimidated by it. I'm like, listen, man, you do, you know, there's a saying in Islam, lakum dinokum waliyadin, right? When it's all said and done, to you be your way and let me be mine. We all going to have to mm. answer for the decisions that we make. I've always known that about you in terms of how you approach problems, how you approach ideas. I mean, it, it's always been in a way that I think is defined by intellectual engagement, not, you know, just shouting at people what you think. And I think that's a hell of an example Absolutely. for others. Um, it's just a, a question. Why, why do you think that some of the most influential and important political athletes in history were either adherents to Islam or in some way in dialogue with the Muslim faith? Are we, we, we can't be talking coincidence when we speak of you, Ali, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, maybe different faiths or strains of Islam, but sharing that dialogue with the Muslim faith. Jim Brown, who was never a Muslim, was in dialogue with the Muslim faith. What, what is that about in your mind? Do, do, what, have you ever thought of that? Yeah, I mean, now that's a that's one of those questions that you can get into a lot of different areas. But just the first couple of things that come to my mind, just generally speaking, I think that like anything, there's information that they come across with whoever introduced them to Islam, whether it was books or whether it was personalities that just resonated with them. And then I think Islam has that component. Well, I know that Islam has that component because we, we were conditioned, you know, in, in, in Christianity historically to think more passively. Like I, you get slapped, turn the cheek and then give them your other cheek. And then after that, even give them a piece of your cloth, you know, your clothes or <laughs> overcoat. But we're never told about where Jesus tells his disciples when oppression had reached the point of almost no return, kind of like Martin Luther King and nonviolence. And then all of a sudden there's this, the greatest purveyor of violence is, you know, U.S. militarism, capitalism, whatever. And now he's, he's, he's assassinated because now, mm -hmm. yes, nonviolence is a tool, but it's not an end all. You have the right to defend yourself. And so Islam has that component, kind of like the Old Testament. You know, right? And I for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. If you aggress upon me, I have the right to defend myself and aggress upon you. And so we weren't taught necessarily what Jesus tells his disciples to sell your garments to buy swords. Now, he wasn't mm -hmm. telling them to do this because they get ready to go cut apples. They're going to know. No, it's, it, it, oppression has reached a point. So I think that resonates with just the human being, right? To, to mm -hmm. know that, hey, man, hold on. I'm not, I'm not obligated by God to tolerate this. And so that's mm -hmm. something that appeals, especially, you know, to, to us living in this country because what we've had to endure and how we've been taught that version of responding to crises, right? You got to respond to it. This, this is the more civil way of doing it while we're being uncivilly knocked upside the head, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I, so I, I think those things, those things appeal to a lot of, in particular, African Americans, uh, because of that 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 history. Mm. You know, you spent years 
not being in the public sphere after your career. Mm -hmm. And now we have the incredible book, which I spoke about in the introduction, Blink of an Eye, oh, nice. Blink of an Eye. In the, and we have this incredible movie, Stand, on Showtime. What has that been like for you to step out into the public eye and, in effect, reintroduce yourself to a new generation? Challenging, uh, exciting, um, all, at, all at the same time, uh, interesting. Uh, it, because you, you, you know better than anyone um, that even if you write a book or you do a documentary, you're never ever able to put every last thing right in it mm -hmm. right you try to pick out you know what you can and definitely it, it it's truthful so that was one of the, the 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 biggest struggles with me and and i'm not a pro fresh professional writer so you have to lean on other people in terms of also hey what makes the transition smooth and what doesn't and what's too many examples right of the same examples and you gotta you gotta you gotta pick and choose but it's uh it's beautiful um also the, there's a younger generation that didn't know uh, about me and they're being introduced and they're thinking a little different you know than i see that they're, right they're thinking a little bit a little bit more different and challenging things a little differently than what we were we were doing and and some of it is just beautiful like they they seem to be in some ways just undeterred like hey man <laughs> this is what i think and this is what i feel and and so it's nice and i love traveling and having this dialogue i'm learning so much you know and having this dialogue being able to to reach back with the youth but also those people that were there that experienced it some of the people that were older and um uh, and, and and continue to learn uh so Wow. You know, you, you've been generous with your time, but there's no way I'm going to let you go without asking just a couple of hoops questions. Oh, I mean, come on. <laughs> you're, you're Mahmoud abdul Raouf for goodness sakes. Uh, you know, when I told folks that I was interviewing you, about four different people thought they were being very original by saying, Mahmoud abdul Raouf, that's Steph before Steph. And I'm wondering <laughs> if you've... If, if, if you if you've heard it's almost a cliche. I was like, I get it, I get it. He was Steph before Steph, you know. And yeah. but I wanted to to ask you, what's your react? I'm sure you've heard that. What's your reaction when you hear that comp? Man, look, uh, I'm to still be in the conversation uh, with especially somebody like that. I'm just I'm 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 humbled. I'm I'm immensely mm. grateful. But there's always someone. I don't care how great someone is it's hard to reinvent the wheel you just want to go down in history the crossover was here before i was born the behind the back dribble mm -hmm. the you know the off the glass hesitation but you just try to leave a mark to where people remember you for doing mm -hmm. the same thing that someone before you was able to do to inspire you and so just to be in that conversation man uh, uh, to be mentioned still by by both young and, and and old and them to people to appreciate the hard work you put in and even though I didn't have the career nowhere near that Curry has had in terms of the you know the they I, I say always about them they have a fl fluorescent light you know not just mm -hmm. a green light they can they can shoot that thing it's a guard's mm -hmm. game now so it's just different but uh just to be the people to see the similarities you know, because there's wow. always, you know, I, even with, I say, look, man, there were people doing this before me. 
right? You know that all of this type of stuff, and uh, so it's just it's just a humbling experience, man. I'm I'm grateful. And then my last question: today's game, you mentioned the fluorescent light, threes, threes everywhere, pace yeah. and space. How would you have done in your mind in such an NBA? Because Lord knows the '90s NBA was not this. Right. And do you like this version of the sport? Not all of it. Uh, I don't like all of it, but I love the I love the fact that I've always d- detested people putting someone in a box. Mm. Uh, in the context of you know we grew up and big men, you you're down low, and even then I was like, well, but what if? What if you got a guy that's he's a big man, but he's playing against somebody like Shaq that weighs almost four hundred pounds? But this guy, if he learns how to dribble and he learns how to shoot, he can bring Shaq out and, and pull a Durant on him. He doesn't have to pound all day. What if we need him to dribble the ball up because, you know what I mean, uh, to take pressure off of us? The more you learn, the more, the more versatile you are, the more valuable you are. So to see big guys and, and forwards being able to handle the rock, shoot threes and, and do all of those guard moves, I love it. I've always felt that that should be the case, even guards learning how to post up. Right. Because you're going to be in different scenarios. But I I, I kind of I'm not attracted to. In the course of the game, you have a wide open shot. It's a it's a mid range shot, but you'll. You will throw it to the three. Right. And you give up right. those those things. I don't like the fact all, also that sometimes you the big man has become obsolete. Mm-hmm. I think there's value, you know, that part of the game as well. Um, and, and to some degree, reality, I, I train some of these guys and, and they say, look, when you, when, when I'm attacking you and I'm face up, of course you can't touch me, you know, but when I turn to the side, you can kind of nudge a little bit and hit this. I'm like, okay, I get it. So you asked me the question, how I would, I would like to say, because I, I fashioned myself on being able to get my shot off of anybody. And if I could do it during that era when it was hand checking and a little bit more physical, me now <laughs> face guarding or whatever, I would like to say that yeah, it would have been a whole lot. I would like to say it would have been a whole lot easier, and I would have got way more attempts up. It's almost like shooting practice in a scenario like that, mm. you know. So it would have been nice. It would definitely been nice to experience, but that won't ever happen. <laughs> And I know uh, shooting practice for you is layup practice for uh, is really layup practice, given your shots. So, I appreciate that, man. I appreciate uh, oh, that. Come on, man. Sweetest it. shot of, of, of the generation, as far as I'm concerned. Mahmoud Abdur, if you've been so generous with your time, uh, the book is amazing in the blink of an eye. The documentary is eye-opening, Stand on Showtime and Hulu and other platforms. Thank you so much for joining us on Edge of Sports TV. No, thank you, Dave. I appreciate it. And now, some choice words. Okay, look, you may or may not be familiar with the new College of Florida. 
This is the tiny 700-student school that the state's governor, Ron DeSantis, has turned into a social experiment by firing a mass of allegedly left-wing professors, shutting down entire departments like gender studies, eliminating its diversity, equity, and inclusion workforce, forcing out students, and hiring flunkies to run it, including a media-addicted racist named Christopher Rufo. Wow. For people who rail against woke cancel culture, they have proved in practice what's been obvious from jump. They don't give a damn about free speech or a free exchange of ideas. They are leading a war against any discourse that is objectionable to the dark money billionaires pulling their strings. DeSantis and his trolls are quite open about what they're doing. They want this tiny school to be their Fort Sumter an opening shot in the name of what they crave to do to education throughout Florida and the United States. They want to see ideological purges and ruined lives, all in the service of an unaccountable, right-wing, authoritarian agenda. And again, they are open about this and damn proud of how they've hollowed out the new college. Every fired professor or expelled student a pelt on their wall. But why am I talking about it here on Edge of Sports? Well, one reason is that I recently heard the Dream Defenders, a resistance organization in Florida, and a fired new college professor speak. And I was stunned that in the state where my mom was raised and my grandparents took their last breaths, a fascist thought laboratory has been born. But that's not the only reason. I'm also talking about the new college because I am frankly sickened that sports is one of the ways that DeSantis is openly and proudly forcing an ideological cleanse upon the student body. In a recent press release posted on the official Florida government's website, a press release that frankly reads like a memo to the billionaires that own him, DeSantis boasts of the success at the new college since his hostile takeover. He crows that in addition to canceling departments and destroying people's lives, which, yes, he brags about, The former Yale baseball player celebrates, and I quote, the introduction of intercollegiate athletics outside of existing intramural sports by forming six teams and a scholarship fund for incoming athletes and recruitment of nearly 150 student athletes since launching the athletic program in the spring. Just think about that. 150 new student athletes out of just 700 students. Consider those numbers and let's be clear. This ain't about sports. And this definitely isn't about giving poor student athletes the chance at a college education. This is about the state government sending millions in taxpayer money to the new college so they can basically buy a new right-wing student body through the means of athletic scholarships to replace those they forced to leave. Remember, They are building an athletic department at a school of 700 people so they can throw free college money at athletes coming largely from Christian private schools so they can change the ideological makeup of the school and replace the students who have been driven out. This is about nothing less than taxpayers subsidizing a purge. Look, I love sports and I make no secret about that, but I also know that sports is like a fire and fire can cook you a meal or fire can burn down your house. DeSantis is using sports to burn down that school in service of an agenda defined by bigotry. I remember when Andrew Gillum, running against DeSantis in that first governor's race in 2018, 
said that he didn't think DeSantis was a racist, but that the racists all thought DeSantis was a racist. That gave Ron way too much credit. In DeSantis's Florida, marching Nazis gather in front of Disney World and scare children. Seriously, that's the atmosphere he's fostered. Yes, Ron DeSantis might be an Ivy League racist with a dark money polish, but he's a racist all the same. And maybe that's why he was booed last month at a vigil after three people, Angela Michelle Carr, Gerald Gallion, and A.J. Laguerre Jr. were murdered by yet another Nazi in Jacksonville. Maybe that's why one of the dream defenders said to me that Ron DeSantis may as well have pulled the trigger. There is a movement that must be built in Florida against the DeSantis agenda, but make no mistake, whether he becomes president or not, and he won't because he is the charm of a rabid possum, what has happened at the new college is already a trial balloon for what the dark money billionaires want to do to education across the country. Athletes, I have no doubt, will play a part in the coming resistance, but part of that resistance will have to be a refusal to be pawns in their game. And now for Ask a Sports Scholar, we have the author of A Little Less Conversation, The Thematic Evolution of Sports Journalism's Narrative of Mental Illness. When we have him right here, and I'm so glad to have him, Drexel University's own Dr. Ron Bishop. Ron Bishop, thanks so much for joining us on the Ask a Sports Scholar section of Edge of Sports TV. Happy to be here. Good to see you again, Dave. Yeah, it's great to see you. Uh, My first question is about the title of the book, It just throws me a little bit. Why call it a little less conversation? Don't we want more conversation about mental health and sports? That's a great question. I think um, for my money is I was sort of wading through all of the different stages in the history of the narrative. It just occurred to me that one of the newer trends, I guess, or themes in coverage is what I'm very awkwardly calling for the moment, the we need to keep a dialogue going frame Mm -hmm. or theme. And so towards the end of the book, and maybe just because it had taken me four years to write, it just seemed as though it was time to stop talking and actually, you know, maybe put a little bit more uh, action toward helping athletes at all levels, not just, you know, professionally, of course, who are a struggling or experiencing mental illness and also are trying to determine whether or not it's something that they'd want to share for, you know, for whatever reason to benefit others or to uh, just get their stories out there. And so, and it has to do, I think too, and I know, uh, lots of folks, your, your listeners or your viewers will be, uh, not big fans of Rob Manfred and the commissioner, uh, class in professional sports, but, uh, they like to sort of pat themselves on the back for, you know, that again, that, you know, we're, we're engaged in a dialogue and they tend to get stuck in it rather than actually then, although there have been some positive moves, more teams hiring psychologists and having uh, mental health help available, but it just seemed to be enough with the conversation. Let's let's do more, even more for the athletes because it it affects you know nationally within the general population. Of course, I think one in five is the last number, and certainly within the athletic population, it's it's a major major issue. Let's talk about how the media reports on this, because as someone who doesn't look at it nearly as closely as you have, I would have assumed that there would have been progress in how the media discusses this. But your research says that this evolution has actually been much more distorted and much less this linear line of progress. Is that, is that fair? 
I think so. Yeah, I think, uh, again, you know, it's been a, a very, I think, positive and productive journey for me, but I did sort of find three sort of overlapping phases. And the first one, I guess, should be qualified somewhat with the fact that you know, sports journalism as a field or as a chunk of the field had just started coming into being, the likes of Tim Murnane and others had just started becoming sports journalists. I mean, editors at that point were begrudgingly giving more space to sports and, uh, you know, making sure that the, that space was severely limited. And so the question occurred to some sports writer friends of mine uh, when I would run this by them uh, in the initial stages of the research, you know, why could, is it folly to expect, you know, members or practitioners of a very, very new part of the craft to express or to cover mental illness or what was what little there was being written about it at that time with a degree of nuance and sensitivity, but I still thought it was an important baseline. And so that first stage, you know, ranging from you know, the late 1800s till maybe uh, just before, I guess, Jimmy Pearsall hit the scene was marked by very sensationalized, very over the top, very, you know, insensitive to say the least coverage. And when Pearsall and uh, his his sort of contemporaries who uh, tried to, or or made the attempt to share more, about their experiences, it became more of a uh, an encumbrance or an inconvenience. I mean, Pearsall's case is actually a bit of an outlier because he did gain so much publicity and was such an outsized personality, of course. Um, but other athletes at that time, Hirschberger and some of the others that are mentioned in the book, who were a little bit more obscure, when they would their their mental illness would lead to. Uh, in some cases, the choice to end uh, their lives or just a, a great deal of suffering, the teams would then be positioned as being burdened by it rather than you know, having to uh, do anything positive or constructive to help the athlete through what was going on. And then a lot of coverage after the fact if, uh, in the earlier chapters, some of the athletes would be, well, you know, he always seemed moody when at the beginning of what was going on in that athlete's life, they were just being dismissed as, you know, sort of crackpots or angry or sullen or, you know, a variety of different adjectives that are that are used. And so when, uh, as in the case of Martin Bergen and some of the other athletes, when they tragically took their own lives, and in Bergen's case, uh, he killed his wife and son, then all of a sudden there was this overperformed shock on the part of the athletes. But on the part of his teammates. But by the time we hit, and I'm sorry to jump around, but by the time we hit the 60s and 70s and uh, Tony Horton and Alex Johnson, we start, and most notably Lionel Aldridge, the great Packers star, uh, we start to see kind of the development or the the genesis of this template that I talk about um, that sort of lasts into today, where athletes like Aldridge and uh, he, um, Bert Yancey, the PGA golfer, who I wish I had had more time to talk about, um, step up and become spokespeople for uh, for the mentally ill, for groups like uh, the National Alliance of the Mentally Ill and others. And so they occupy a little bit more space. But the tricky part in that third phase is that instead of, and this goes back to your first question, um, instead of then using that as a cue to uh, bake in more nuance and sensitivity and information into the coverage, Sports writers, you know, you still are an excellent one, and I was one many years ago, uh, sort of go to the formula. And so it becomes a, a means 
of making the reader or the viewer or the clicker, I guess, comfortable with the experience rather than doing a sort of a deep dive into what uh, what it's actually like. And it, a lot of that has to do with the amount of control that athletes have over their uh, their public statements and their public image these days. Um, so, you know, the sports writer is already faced with that. But then on top of that, you know, the I guess the inclination to then dive in and maybe go deeper. And there are some who have. And that, again, circles back to your question, your first question. There is improvement, but there still is this over-reliance on the, this, you know, it's a very heroic thing. And there's a, a lot of big differences too. Uh, when we look at male versus female athletes, and especially uh, athletes of color versus versus white athletes, and also uh, the severity of the mental illness. So, wow! And it, 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 the irony here is, as you said, this is a societal problem, not an athletic problem. So one imagines that sports writers have either dealt with this, or members of their family or friends have dealt with mental health challenges. So I, I keep going back to this question about why this is such a tough nut for sports writers to crack. Is it all about trying to create something palliative for the audience or are we dealing with something else here? My, my suspicions lend me towards that mental health issues just don't fit neatly with the narrative of sports. Yeah, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think that we, as I said, you know, other social issues um, looked at through the sports writer's lens, you know, have taken varying degrees of time to find a space uh, uh, on the agenda, I guess, so to speak, and then to be treated. They all sort of interrupt in one way or another. And I was thinking before we got together to chat today about Julio Urias, the Dodgers pitcher, and how... Mm domestic violence and what in his case seems to be two very severe uh, and very tragic and violent acts of violence, um, how that, it, it sort of punctures the feel good or stay interested kind of bubble that sports writers, again, having been one years ago, um, try to create for their fans. There's a really great scholar up at the University of Toronto, Mark Lowe's, who, you know, it, it's kind of a no kidding statement, but it's still very powerful that the sports writer's gig is to sustain interest in the teams and to, you know, go into nuanced uh, sort of tragic details of Urias's behavior uh, in another, you know, sort of uh, arena or uh, uh, someone really trying to grapple in a non, I guess, performative way or a non-public consumption way with mental illness, it just doesn't fit, uh, as you were saying. I mean, it's not, it's it's almost as though, you know, since they found this, and I was reminded of this with Simone Biles making her triumphant comeback a week or so ago, that it, I was struck, of course, by her performance, which is just amazing but also how almost automatically the mental health element had been stripped down to be so formulaic and so bullet pointed that, you know, she had overcome this. They mentioned the twisties, they mentioned, um, you know, her, her withdrawal in the Olympics and that kind of thing. But now that's all that's left of that discussion where she clearly is out there uh, in addition to being probably the greatest gymnast of all time, she's out there trying to be a champion for this. And so, in its own way, that uh, is a bit structured and a bit orchestrated. But again, sports writers are just sort of content to, you know, focus on the now rather than you know go back and really earnestly rehash that. And again, some do, 
but overall, uh, and especially as more and more sports journalism is practiced in places where uh, it's, it's still a lot of it is new to me, um, it, it, it's just sort of a uh, back in the rearview mirror kind of thing when new developments come up. And I, I would make the case, I, I think, that uh, it can be as harmful to speak about mental health as this classical Hollywood narrative of obstacles overcome and then success and mental stability, that can be as harmful as not talking about it at all. I agree. I think that it becomes, and Howard Bryant, whom I'm sure you know very well, um, he calls it the, the sort of this ritual of rehabilitation where um, you know, they enter the arena, so to speak, they share their experiences, they sort of go through the gauntlet of interviews and controlled or otherwise. And then that's, it's not that it's it, or that's the end of it, of course, because it, it becomes an ongoing part of the, of, of that athlete's history and that athlete's presence, presence on the public stage. But it does almost take on a, and I use this term not to you know, be be cheeky or anything, but sort of a form of perseverance porn where, you know, they've gone through this and now they're, it's almost like Mike Messner's idea. Uh, I can't remember the exact term, but, you know, it's the mental health equivalent of just stick the bone back in and, you know, go into the game and right. be, there, be there in Paris in 2024 and so on, um, which I'm thrilled that she's going to do that, Simone Biles. But I think, um, you know, that again, doesn't lead us, if any of us, what a fraction or a segment of us would be curious about or know somebody to cycle back to your your point earlier, know somebody in our family that we might want to help, that information isn't going to be a great deal of assistance. It's it's formulaic and triumphant and a lot of things, but does it does it actually help? You know, and I think that very earnestly, athletes like Simone Biles, Michael Phelps, and and others, many of whom are chronicled in the book, um, do it for really good reasons. But then it kind of has to be sort of force fit into that template that we mentioned that kind of started uh, with Aldridge back, you know, when he made his recovery from mental illness uh, after, you know, leaving football. You know, a favorite here on Edge of Sports TV is a former guest, Shamiqua Holdsclaw. Mm -hmm. Uh, How important was she to this discussion of mental health becoming more broad-based both in the sports world and beyond? I think very important. I think one of the things that as a sort of, I don't know if it's a counterpoint to or a parallel track, is the fact that most of the coverage of athletes being either sort of led to or choosing to share their experiences, most of them up until not all that long ago were men and white men largely. Uh, so, you know, there's an interesting, in one of the chapters, for example, I talk about the differences in coverage between when Tony Horton, uh, wanted to drive himself to improve and Alex Johnson, who won the batting title, uh, in 1970 with the angels was dismissed as a, you know, under the, the angry black man trope, he was just a, a cranky, nasty, uh, person, but Shamiqua, Julie Crone, they're essential because it helped broaden the experience, you know, for for us as consumers of sports news to to not let us know that it's, you know, not just it's not just men. And she's she publicly discussed her her illness, her experience was still not exactly the most sensitive or nuanced. But as far as, you know, what she means to the broader broader story, it's 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 
it's just a very powerful part mm. of the of, of the trip. You, you've been so generous with your time, Ron. I, tell us all though, what is next for Ron Bishop? <laughs> well, it's kind of a strange uh, turn of events since I can't uh, I can't seem to shut the brain off. I'm actually writing a a book on a black public affairs television show called Positively Black, which uh, began airing in uh, 1970, actually. The host of the show for a long time was a really respected gentleman and labor leader and a thousand other things named Gus Henningberg, whose son was an old friend. Uh, and as middle-aged men do a year or so ago, we reconnected on Facebook and we thought, hey, this would be a great idea. And so it broadened beyond, you know, just his dad to look at, I mean, uh, maybe we will come back and talk about it, but it's uh, the Kerner Commission and uh, the commitment of broadcasters to Black public affairs shows and the history and the tenor of the times. I grew up right outside of Newark, New Jersey, and have very vivid memories of you know, what happened, the, the rebellion and, uh, in that time frame in the late 60s. And, you know, as, as Gus and I became uh, closer and closer friends, you know, at that point, I my understanding was not nuanced. And the only thing I really thought was that his dad was really cool because he was on TV. Hmm. But fortunately, time allows for perspective. And we're taking a look at the show, and which is still on the air uh, in truncated segments, various ports of call on the internet. Um, but, uh, you know, and looking at where where we are now in terms of meaningful discussion of issues important to the Black community. So, And I'm sure an amazing array of guests on Positively Black to, oh, to, to go through. Yeah, we are. Uh, I had the pleasure, just as a quick final thought, of speaking with Nona Hendricks uh, of LaBelle. Oh, wow. Yeah, she wrote the theme song for the show. What? Uh, yeah, no, no. It's It even gets what? better. The show's first musical director in 1970 uh, was Dizzy Gillespie. What? And, <laughs> yeah. And the guy who was the, the person who was the first... EP for the show, Tom Skinner was the only, I mean, you're going to have to stop me at some point, otherwise I'll just keep gabbing, but uh, was the only journalist in New York to be in the Audubon Ballroom when Malcolm X was killed. Oh, dear God. Yeah, it's just, it's one, it's been amazing. I mean, I obviously could go on for, for hours, but I, it's just a, I mean, I'm a, I, I've been investigating and interrogating my own white privilege as so many of us should do, and just thinking about you know being in this this line of work for a while how how earnest and and i guess sort of wide-eyed it all was to think that we could put shows like that on the air and sort of get you know whites off their collective mental keisters and learn more about uh the black community and you know, wish for those days but anyway yeah that's uh that's the Amazing. next one yeah one of my uh favorite moments on youtube was finding Nikki Giovanni and Muhammad Ali together on yeah. a Black Public Affairs show, and that was that was an absolute uh, window or portal, if you will, into the world you're talking about. Yeah, uh, and it, it not Muhammad Ali just really briefly does play a tiny role in in this because one of the on the very first episode of the show in 1970, one of the guests was the Black jazz musician activist named Oscar Brown Jr. And he had just done a sadly poorly received Broadway show called Buck White. Yes. Which has its own history and amazing uh, backstory. But Muhammad Ali was actually the lead in that very short-lived musical. 
And um, the 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 reason that it only lasted, I think, four performances was the critics all kind of ripped him for not being equipped to be a Broadway actor or whatever. But it was just a little going back to our, I guess, in a way, our the point of our discussion. It was deemed too black for Broadway and that black audiences couldn't afford the tickets to go see it. And so it died on the vine quickly. But yeah, it's just been amazing. I, everywhere I turn, it's just one fascinating person after the next. Well, a quick shout out to uh, the documentary, The Trials of Muhammad Ali, that has clips of Buck White. Uh, Excellent. And the director, the late Bill Siegel, just a tremendous filmmaker. Yeah. Ron Bishop, thank you so much for joining us here on Edge of Sports. It was really great. I appreciate the opportunity, Dave. It's good to see you again, and we'll, we'll keep in touch. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. Thank you, Mahmoud abdul Raouf. Thank you, Dr. Ron Bishop. And thank you to everybody here at The Real News Network for pulling off this show on a weekly basis. For everybody out there listening, please stay frosty. We are out of here. Peace. Thank you so much for watching The Real News Network, where we lift up the voices, stories, and struggles that you care about most. And we need your help to keep doing this work. So please, tap your screen now, subscribe, and donate to The Real News Network. Solidarity forever.